0: Today, on Speaking Out of Place, we talk with award winning novelist and activist Susan Albahawa about a major literary festival she's organizing entitled Palestine Rights, which will take place in Philadelphia from September 22nd to September 24th. Palestine Rights is the only North American literature festival dedicated to celebrating and promoting cultural productions of Palestinian writers and artists. Born from the pervasive marginalization of Palestinian voices in mainstream literary institutions, the festival brings Palestinian cultural workers from all parts of historic Palestine and an exiled diaspora together with peers from other marginalized groups in the United States, crossing multiple borders, geographic, linguistic, and cultural boundaries. Writers, artists, publishers, booksellers, scholars, musicians, and thinkers hold conversations about art, literature, and the intersections between culture and power, struggle, politics, climate change, sexuality, human rights, animal rights food sovereignty, and more. Al-Bahawa gives us an inside look at the genesis of the festival, its motivating ethos, and its politics. Susan Al-Bahawa is a novelist, poet, essayist, scientist, mother, and activist. Her debut novel, Mornings in Janine, translated into 30 languages, was an international bestseller and is considered a classic in Palestinian literature. Its reach and sales has made Al-Bahawa the most widely read Palestinian author. Her second novel, The Blue Between Sky and Water, was likewise an international bestseller. Against the Loveless World was published in August 2020 by Simon & Schuster to much acclaim. Hawa is the founder of Playgrounds for Palestine, a children's organization dedicated to uplifting Palestinian children. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for his content. I'm so happy that you're able to join us, Susie. It's great to have you on the podcast. Tell us about this amazing festival that's going to be taking place September 22nd through the 24th at the University of Pennsylvania. What's the vision that guides this festival?
1: First of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate you letting me talk about this amazing project that I'm really proud to be a part of. Particularly now, you know, Palestinians have been facing erasure for decades. There's the physical erasure of our villages the names of our villages, the erasure of the word Palestine from the map, erasure of our identities. And now there's this kind of colonization of our narratives, of our stories and our history. And Palestine rights is part of a counterforce against this new form of colonization. The Zionist colonial narrative has always shifted with shifting winds, depending on what's in vogue at the time. Initially, it was this sort of romantic ending to Europe's genocide of its own Jewish population. And there was this epic myth of a land without it people, for people without land. And of course, that was unsustainable. It morphed into a fledgling nation in a sea of terrorists and irrational, crazy people. It also, before that, was an explicitly colonial endeavor. Back when colonial was, so to speak, on the menu, and it was okay to colonize after uh, West Asia and other parts of the world and European Zionists self-entitled to their own piece of that colonial pie and so that was there was explicit colonial language and narrative around Palestine, and then it morphed into an epic lie right there was this new narrative that was tried out, and it was unsustainable. And it was that Palestine doesn't exist, and Palestinians never existed, etc. But now we find ourselves at a whole new narrative, that is: these who came from Europe and all parts of the world are indigenous. It's insane. And you find suddenly falafel is their national dish. And the irony is that falafel is literally an Arabic word that comes from the word filfil, which means pepper. This is a dangerous kind of escalation of their colonial project. It is a bizarre new narrative, but it's being promulgated quite forcefully and expansively, and especially in the West. It's important for us to hold our ground on this. The land stories are our stories. We've been there continuously inhabiting that land for millennia. And that's a fact that is an irrefutable, well-supported, documented fact for which there is ample forensic evidence, whether it's archeology, span whether it's the historic record, whether it's title deeds, whether it's our genetic makeup that is similar to everybody else in the region. There is forensic evidence of our indigeneity, but not of theirs. And there's this inverted narrative. So we want to tell our stories and it's important for us to tell our stories. It's important for every society to have cultural expressions of their heritage, of their lives and their lived experiences. It's it's urgent for Palestinians because of this systematic, well-funded program of erasure.
0: I also want to point out, especially to a U.S. audience that may not know how to draw certain connections, we find the same thing happening in the U.S. I mean, if we will not be replaced, this notion of right-wing indigeneity, it's very scary because it has a powerful emotional punch. But when it's distorted in such a appropriative and expropriative way, at the same time as you have the sense of Palestinian voices. You have a double danger here, it seems to me.
1: Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned indigenous Americans because we are making those connections. We have indigenous speakers. We have aboriginal speakers from Australia as well. We have black American speakers, Asian American, and we're keen to ensure that those parallels and dots are connected.
0: Absolutely. Uh, At
1: the festival. Because
0: that's exactly what the Zionists don't want. They don't want solidarity. And what this festival is doing is showcasing it both politically but also aesthetically.
1: One of the plenaries that's going to be featured in the festival is the unveiling of a joint project between visualizing Palestine and Palestine rights. We commissioned them to create visual representations of something we envisioned which is basically depicting the material culture in Palestine, including things that have to do with local economies over time, local habits over time, artists, cultural productions, architecture, food, ways of life, stories, things that have been gathered in pieces from ancient history and modern history. There's going to be the traditional oral storytelling form, sort of literary tradition for people who could not read or write. So we are going to tell some stories from Ottoman Palestine. Really interesting stuff. There's one story that connects slavery in the United States to the citrus industry in Palestine. Wow. And how those sort of romanticized orange groves that Palestinians have this sort of nostalgic view of were in fact one of the single biggest devastation to the Palestinian theme prior to the Mecca. There's a story in there about Palestinian feminism before the word feminism, you know, really interesting. There's stories from the diaries of a musician in Jerusalem, but he left us these extensive diaries of the late 1800s and early 1900s in Jerusalem. There's an extensive children's program. There's going to be talks, panel discussions on topics ranging from Palestine in the Global South is one of the panels. We're going to talk about publishing Palestine in the mainstream, about translating culture. We have presentations on Tatriz and how this Tatriz traditional embroidery has developed in Palestinian women's circles over centuries, creating a language of its own that's embroidered in our clothes. And so they're not just aesthetically beautiful. They literally, mm-hmm. people's clothes tell a story of their lineage, of where they're from. So there's a presentation on that. So there's going to be a presentation about the right of return. We have friendship and the cost of friendship, what mm-hmm. solidarity means. We're going to talk about the novel as the historic record, the role of the novel yeah. in either shaping history or reflecting history. It's just a really rich, varied program, and we're all really excited about it.
0: It's funny. I went through the program and I picked out the titles of the panels I was interested in. And you just name them all. For example, you have Young Adult Literature, Poetry, Language of Our Clothing. That's what the one you were talking about, right? Uh-huh. To the writer, of the Return. And the novel has a historical record. And hearing you talk and having it come out of your voice with the passion and the excitement is so impressive. As you were speaking, I thought, God, the program is a work of art. It really is because you do everything you just said so well and so poetically and so seamlessly. There are no disconnects between this category and that category, but there are all these amazing, intricate, woven elements that are so much of a piece of bringing Palestine and literature and cultural formations together. And these marvelous cultural articulations escape categories, right, but are of a whole with the project, which is amazing. I'm sort of answering the question I was going to ask you, but it seems to be such a distinctive feature of this festival, unlike any other that I've seen. Is that kind of what you were going for? is a kind of an amalgamation that transcended your usual literary festival? First
1: of all, it's really exciting for me to hear you talk about the festival like this, because you work hard on something and you never know what people's reactions are going to be. and hearing the excitement. Felt really good. In terms of what we were going for, we wanted to do right by our community. We are just so excluded and tokenized in this country in particular, and we wanted to create a space where we can exist with agency. The festival is about radical truth-telling. It's about a long-suffering indigenous people's desire and insistence on imposing our humanity and our presence in the world. In places that refuse to recognize our humanity. The festival is also about unity. We are bringing Palestinians from every part of our shattered society. We can never gather like this in our own homeland. And so we wanted to make sure that we had representation from historic Palestine, from Shaysan, other parts of 48, from Basse, the West Bank, from Jerusalem, from, refugee camps in Lebanon and in Jordan. We have people coming from various parts of the diaspora throughout the Arab world, in the United States, in Europe in particular, from Australia. We want it to be an intersectional space and to do precisely what we talked about earlier, just connect the dots and really foster a place of community, of collaboration, of cross-pollination among, not just among Palestinians and non-Palestinian intellectuals, but also among Palestinians across these various geographic borders that have resulted in linguistic borders and also generational divides. So none of us exist in isolation, right? Mm. We're a whole people and a whole nation. And I think it's important to have something for everyone. Where we can all be in the same space, the same physical space and share and just sort of exist on this cultural landscape that unites us regardless of our age, our language, where we are. We all exist in this beautiful heritage from our ancestors, but also we exist on this collective pain that we all share, mm-hmm. wound and that just keeps Every new demolished home, yeah. every new Israeli assault—it's a shared space on so many different levels.
0: Well, you got me to a place that I wanted to get to. I want to talk about the first Palestine Rights Festival for two reasons. Mainly, one was I'd love for you to tell our audience the story—the first one, its the original planning, then what happened—because it's a sign of the persistence and the energy and the commitment that you have to this whole enterprise. And the second one is talk a little bit about when we were going through that, we were trying to look at the bright side, right? That we were going to reach a global audience. And I must say, I was so honored to participate in the first one. And you remember that we were volunteering to take care of different kinds of events. And I volunteered to do the children's tent, which was so much fun. Because as you remember, we had kids from all over the world beaming in and telling jokes together. I mean, sometimes the jokes were horrible, but funny. And then learning, pronouncing their names in Arabic. It was such a thrill. So maybe talk a little about the evolution, the morphing of the first festival, and then your thoughts about the first time of having it live, everybody together. What are the advantages of both?
1: I'm glad that you mentioned your participation. Having a Palestine literary space is something that was always what I wanted to do. The U.S. campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel. U.S. Abbey had... The idea to do something called Palestine Rights Back, which was envisioned as a much smaller sort of thing, and then you all invited me to come on board, and I think that took in a different direction. And a lot of folks from USAP stayed on. We together created this incredible event that was set to take place in New York at NYU. And has created this children's program before people were canceling things. I mean, there was even like a debate within our group. Like, I don't think we should cancel. So people are like, cancel. But in the end, we, we thought this was the right thing to do. And, it was, and
0: I should say it was just a few weeks before the festival yes. was going to happen. We had sold out, what, 600 tickets? It was oh, like yeah three venues. It was incredible.
1: We had to keep renting more venues because the tickets were going like mad. I mean, we had people flying in from Morocco, from the West Coast, from all over this country. So it was really shaping up to be a really exciting event. You know, we canceled it, but we regrouped. I mean, we had a month or two of... Being demoralized and bewildered, like, what do we do? We created this virtual space that just had the big wow factor to it. And people loved it. They could move around. They had avatars, you know, walk yeah. around. And it was a really lovely space. And it turned out to be a historic moment, truly, even though it was virtual. We had like 3200 200 unique registrants log in to the individual sessions. There were 67 sessions. We had major personalities from all over the world. Our keynote panel featured Dr. Angela Davis, Richard Falk. It was just amazing all around.
0: And a lot of it is on YouTube for folks who wanted to look at some of the panels.
1: Yeah, it's all on YouTube.
0: But it's nothing like being together. And I remember we talked about it as we were planning it. We had the menu set up. It was gonna be vegan. There was this this huge communal sense that you're all gonna be able to have now in Philadelphia. You must be incredibly excited.
1: Yeah, so it's only going to be in person. We were trying Mm -hmm. to do, we might just live stream the opening night because that's Mm -hmm. all to be in one room, but then the rest of the festival is just going to be recorded and not virtual. We'll release those as we go along after the festival.
0: That's a good idea. It makes it more spontaneous.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, from working with me the last time that sometimes I try to do too much. And this was one of the moments where I felt like, OK, we have to like just have it in person, at least Saturday. There's going to mm-hmm. be food at the festival for attendees. There'll also be private dinners for the speakers. And it's all vegan.
0: Yeah. That was yeah. actually
1: my one condition for doing this again. Food's got to be vegan.
0: I'm so glad you are doing it because when we were talking about it, the world is violent enough. And we have these amazing chefs showing their recipes and things like that. This. this is all part of a cultural life. So what kinds of people are registering? You must have this amazing set of different folks coming in.
1: So we have, obviously, a lot of Philadelphians, folks who are local. We have a lot of people coming from out of town. There are some folks who registered from D.C., some people from California, Indiana, Colorado, of course, New York. Baltimore, Virginia, like surrounding areas and throughout other parts of uh, Pennsylvania. A lot of students, we're particularly reaching out to students. We also have a free access ticket option for anybody who really wants to come but cannot afford to. We don't want money to stand in people's way. So who knows what the final count is going to be like, but we've been really pleased with ticket sales that have occurred without much publicity at all. So I think as word gets around, it'll be similar to the way it was the first time.
0: So Philadelphia, I I know about it through Susan garage. That's her home turf.
1: Yeah. Susan lives in in Baltimore, but she's from Philly. She grew up here and her family's still here. There's a sizable Palestinian community in the area. It's not huge, but we're certainly a healthy number around here. There's also like a lot of non-Palestinian Arabs in the area. There's a huge solidarity network as well. Right. Philadelphia recently raised the Palestinian flag at Mm -hmm. City Hall. It was a big deal Mm -hmm. and it was hugely opposed by Zionists, but it went nonetheless. Yeah, it's nice.
0: And a number of really important Black museums, too, cultural centers. I remember we were involved with the Schomburg Center in the first one. So I'm imagining you're doing similar things in Philadelphia with the Black community. Absolutely. Winding up, I'm going back to something you referred to earlier. And the title of the panel is The Cost, Reward and Urgency of Friendship. And there's so much in that title. Could you talk about that panel, especially the cost? Because a lot of people don't understand that coming out in solidarity is not without its costs, depending on the level of commitment. Tell us about that panel, because I also want us to be able to support you and be friends with the festival.
1: So this is going to be a very special panel and we decided to open the festival with this panel even though it's entirely non-Palestinian. And the reason is because we have been the recipients of solidarity that people pay a heavy price for. People lose their jobs. They lose a lot of opportunities. Sometimes their lives are threatened for expressing solidarity with Palestinians. And so we want to talk about that. We want to create a forum to talk about that both to learn but also to salute and acknowledge people to do this. And also to ensure that we are also fostering reciprocal solidarity. And I don't think we've really fallen short on that, especially when it comes to history solidarity from Palestine and to Palestine, whether it's with Black America, with various African struggles, particularly with leftist movements that came out of the sixties and 70s, various decolonization movements and liberation movements. Palestine was always part of these. And while others have obtained their independence and or freedom, or at least moved towards that, we remain in this intensifying colonial process. Project Unable to dislodge these shackles, in large part because of U.S. and European economic and political support for our colonizers and our oppressors. It's really demoralizing. It's like nuclear power with the most technological death machines in the world attacking a refugee camp of principally unarmed civilians that they made refugees in the first place Mm. out of their homes and forced into this ghetto. And now they're attacking them with Apache war, with drone, robo soldiers, with tanks and other armored carriers. And they go in and just have, they've leveled whole neighborhoods. They have destroyed the schools. They've knocked out the electricity, destroyed the water infrastructure. And then... The United States comes on in Europe and they say, well, Israel has a right to defend itself. from whom? from teenagers who have weapons against this military to defend themselves in some way, to not die broken. You have that on the official level. And then on another level, you have the complicity of all these other aspects of society, including and chiefly the media. I actually got a request from the BBC and it was on WhatsApp and I posted it. Somebody reached out to me from the BBC asking if I would be interested in doing an interview with them regarding my book, Mornings in Janine, in the context of what's happening in Janine. And so they wanted to talk about Janine. She asked to call me and she did. I spoke to her on the phone and she wanted me to talk about the conditions in Janine, the lack of services, the young population that doesn't have opportunity, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I agreed with her. And then when I mentioned the more important and fundamental issue, is that these are refugees that Israel made refugees and took their homes, and that's the source of their condition. She didn't want to talk about that. said, well, we're more interested in speaking about the services, water, etc. And I think they wanted to implicate the Palestinian Authority.
0: Of course, yeah.
1: And I think what I was saying in response wasn't to her liking. And so she said, okay, we'll get back to you. And I wrote to her and said, look, if you want me to just talk about the services without hating Israel in any way in the material conditions of people in this refugee camp, I'm not your person. And if you wouldn't let me say on air that Israel is the only terrorist in this equation, then I'm not your person. And she very explicitly just said, "Okay, well, thanks anyway. Yep. So the beginning is creating this narrative as well.
0: And I'm thinking as you were speaking about terrorism, know the title of Patrice Collor's book, When the World Calls You a Terrorist. That's what the media has done. They've skewed a narrative saying this population itself is criminal and therefore has earned the violence that the U.S. tax money has paid for in billions of dollars. And it's so self-serving. Tell us more about the panel. What's your festival going to bring to light in ways that we can form paths of solidarity despite the costs? And talk about the rewards.
1: So it's going to feature Gary Young, Roger Waters, and it's moderated by Rachel Holmes. All of these people have expressed very public solidarity with Palestine. We want them to talk about what that has meant in their lives and why they did it, knowing there could be a cost and it's much easier to keep your mouth shut. I think a lot of people who in their hearts stand with us, are afraid to say anything. I know at least in academia, I've known a lot of people who say they have to wait after their tenure to be able to say anything, to sign petitions, to speak their mind, to take a moral stand. And I think that's a real phenomenon in academia that we see and in other industries as well. People are losing their jobs for not signing a pledge. Now, if you don't pledge allegiance to Israel, you don't get government funding. I mean, you know, exactly. the anti-BDS laws. And so we want to hear from these folks about what it means and the rewards. I know that I get a great deal of personal reward in feeling like I'm living a moral life and standing in solidarity with people who are struggling for justice of some form, whether it's social justice, environmental justice, whether it's the That takes us away from the kind of rapacious, capitalist, individualistic mores that just pervade our lives.
0: You know, if you're like me and a lot of other people, we're just tired of this constant barrage of violence and stupidity and hatred that festivals like this and actions like this exactly as you say, put us in contact with others who are similarly beleaguered and besieged and you get a sense of mutual support and affirmation, right? You're talking in a language that all of a sudden is not like speaking into a void, but you're getting a kind of resonance and affirmation of what life can be. And so any final words, especially ways that we can help the festival and the cause?
1: You know, you're kind of doing it right. And for the festival in particular, I would say get your tickets, join us, be a part of this moment, support us. I personally have been working on this eight months because this is important. It's a big labor of love. There's still been the expenses of its travel. We, bringing, we have a, yeah. some speakers. We're bringing them their travel, their lodging, their food, their Thank TV. You. So all of that costs money. And we managed to raise a good bit of funds, but we operate in the red most of the time. So if you people know. want to support us in that way, we'd be very grateful.
0: Well, you dangle something out there that I want to pick up on, if you don't mind, because it's such a rare occasion to be able to talk to you. Tell me a little bit about the book that you're working on. I'm fascinated. I can't let that go.
1: So I do have a knothole novel in the works. Each one of my novels took place in a different aspect of Palestinian life. This one is going to incorporate Lebanon. Un- more days in Janine incorporated Lebanon un- to some extent, but this one more so. And so this one is, it's very different. It hmm. incorporates animals as well. There's a well. few important characters that are non-human. And in November, I'm going to Lebanon to do some research.
0: Well, Susie, you must come back and talk about this novel after you've well recovered from the festival. In the meantime, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for all the love and energy and passion you've put into this festival. It is such a bright beacon in the world. So thank you for bringing it to us.
1: Thank you, Dave. You're a bright beacon.
0: Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's intentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu, and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.